Welcome to Growing Home, the podcast that helps you take care of the place that means the most to you, your home. I'm your host, Terry Therian, alongside your co-host, Len Giddix. Connecticut ranks number one as the state with the highest percentage of population living in wildland urban interface areas. According to the USDA Forest Service, 72% of Connecticut's residents live in or in close proximity to areas of significant wildland vegetation. With more than 3,300 acres of Connecticut land under management, few know the wildlife, as well as this episode's guest, Patrick Commons, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. As a leading expert in wildlife habitats and populations, Patrick shares with us the history and accomplishments of the Connecticut Audubon Society, tips on how you can make your backyard a wild bird sanctuary, and how a car accident changed the course of his career, a career that has had an impact statewide. Enjoy our insightful interview with Patrick Commons. The Connecticut Audubon Society today has over 20 parcels of land under conservation, which is over 3,300 acres in the state of Connecticut. And, you know, even listed that you guys are educating over 100,000 students a year. To get to that point, you know, where did the Connecticut Audubon Society get its start? It was founded in 1898 by Mabel Osgood Wright, who, along with other conservationists at the time, was appalled at the senseless slaughter of many beautiful birds for the fashion industry. Uh, they, at the time, the millinery trade, uh, they were um, brokering in, in heron and egret feathers primarily that that people would wear these big, beautiful white plumes on their hat. But not just that. There were whole birds on, on people's hats. And uh, um, she and others, uh, like Harriet Hemingway, who was the founder of Mass Audubon, were appalled at this. And they wanted to find a vehicle where people could have their voices heard um, and to let decision makers know that birds were important in people's lives. And they were really successful. They got uh, things passed like the uh, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the Lacey Act, and uh, um, really incorporated um, uh, vigorous protections for, for our birds. She also felt strongly that people needed to be connected to nature so that they would understand and care about conserving nature. So she was an author of many books, including one of the first field guides called Birdcraft, and um, you know, she was very much a believer in environmental education and, and getting people out into nature to see the, the spectacular diversity of birds and other wildlife that we, can be found in Connecticut. Gotcha. And then how does that transition to what the Audubon Society's mission is today? Sure. Well, we try to keep our um, original vision as part of our, our mission. And uh, we really have um, our, our mission is to conserve birds, other wildlife, and their habitats in Connecticut. And we do that through management of our own sanctuaries. As you heard, where as you said earlier, we have more than 3,000 acres of sanctuaries, including some really spectacular places. Our Deer Pond Farm Sanctuary in Sherman is just amazing. Our, our, um, our Croft Preserve in Goshen and our Bafflin Sanctuary in, in uh, um, Pomfret. Uh, right here at Milford Point, our small small Smith Hubble Wildlife Sanctuary. There's some really some of the most uh, amazing and iconic places in Connecticut for for birds, other um, wildlife, and their habitats. And um, so we we try to manage our sanctuaries as best as we can for the diversity of birds and wildlife in Connecticut. 
We also want to offer meaningful opportunities for people to get engaged in conservation, like our shorebird conservation efforts through the Audubon Alliance for Coastal Waterbirds and our Osprey Nation program. Um, we also want to engage people in grassroots activism whenever there are bad legislation pending or bad decisions pending, and when there are good opportunities out there. We want people to be able to have their voices heard. And finally, we have uh, environmental education centers. We have seven throughout our state and, and also our science and nature program, which uses the outdoors as a classroom to teach people about science and nature. So those seven locations, they're a, a pretty good spread across the state. They Is are. there geographical significance to where they are? I think it's a happy accident that they happen to be so spread out. We have our center in Pomfret. We have one in Glastonbury. We have one in Old Lyme. We have one in Milford, two in Fairfield, and one in Sherman. And that gives us a pretty uh, good spread of the state. Plus, we have our eco-travel program office in, in Essex, Connecticut. With each location, do, do they serve different functions, or are they more so just local hubs of the Audubon Society to reach out to that local population? Yes and no. I mean, they, we try to cater the, the, the uh, programming to the various habitats. We have coastal programs here at our coastal center and, and at, at our Roger Troy Peterson Estuary Center in, in uh, Lyme, uh, Old Lyme. And we also have um, activities related to the Connecticut River at, at our Glastonbury Center, grassland uh, um, programs up at our Pomfret Center. And uh, Fairfield tends to be uh, a lot of things about how you can manage your yard for wildlife. Patrick, what's the eco-travel program? Sure. It's a a program where we send people all over the world seeing some of the most spectacular places for for birds and other wildlife. And um, there's there's trips to Africa, to Iceland, to India. Uh, Plus, there are more uh, uh, um, regional trips, too, all all around the country, Texas, uh, to uh, local destinations like Cape Cod and and Long Island, and also day trips in, in the Connecticut area. Wow. And these are all organized by Audubon and yes. you sign up for them? Yes, you sign up for them and uh, you can find out information about uh, about it on our website, ctaudubon.org. Cool. I was thinking through those locations as you listed them off. I imagine that Connecticut may be pretty unique in what it offers for different bird habitats because you have the shoreline, you have the the river, the Connecticut River that's uh, the watershed area going up and right through the middle of the state. And then you have the two more rural corners how would you rank Connecticut as a place to observe both a, a local bird population and migratory birds? Well, Connecticut is fairly unique in the fact that so many people live so close to such great wildlife habitat. There's something called the Urban Wildlife Interface, and Connecticut actually has the highest percentage of that as of any place in the con- any state in the country. So no matter where you live in Connecticut, you're somewhat close to something spectacular. In New Haven, there's East Rock Park. In the Hartford area, you have the Connecticut River. You mentioned the northeast and the northwest corners, which are the quiet corners, if you will, that really uh, abound with with amazing blocks of forests. There's the Mashamasek Forest right in central Connecticut and Glastonbury and Manchester area. The coast of Connecticut has has some amazing tidal marshes and Guilford at the mouth of the Housatonic River, at the mouth of the, the Connecticut River. And we have a few remnant grasslands remaining too in the Connecticut River watershed. So it's really a great diversity of great wildlife habitats in such a small area where so many people so many people live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even down here in Milford, I mean, this is definitely the best view we've ever recorded with, you know, overlooking the beautiful marsh here. So yeah. uh, very we, cool. We may have to record here all the time. I know we may have to come back <laughs> <laughs> next month's episode. 
So you serve as the Connecticut Audubon Society Executive Director. Yes. How did you get your start in the ornithology? I was practicing it yesterday. <laughs> well, I've always been interested in nature. I grew up at uh, going to summer camps at uh, nature centers and uh, was always out exploring in ponds, looking for pond life, looking for the elusive water bear or predaceous diving beetle. I went to Trinity College. And I was originally planning to be pre-med. And uh, after college, I ended up getting a job in a veterinary pathology lab and decided to take a break before I went and, uh, you know, studied for the MCATs, et cetera. I, I got this this really good job. Unfortunately, I was in a car accident that sort of messed up my plans. And I was on disability for a while and eventually started to feel a little bit better. And as I was laid up, I was doing a lot of studying about birds and enjoying the birds at my bird feeder. I, as I started feeling better and better, I would get out more and by chance, I ran into somebody from the National Audubon Society and said, oh, we're looking for a person to do bird surveys along the coast of Connecticut at the McKinney National Wildlife Refuge. So uh, I was uh, able to get that job doing bird surveys. I was actually working for the Connecticut Audubon Society at that time. And eventually that turned into a job from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And the whole time I was active with the Hartford Audubon Society and the Connecticut Ornithological Association. And uh, eventually uh, the job as director of bird conservation came along with Audubon Connecticut, which is the state office of the National Audubon Society. And uh, I began that job in 2000 and stayed there until uh, 2018 when when this uh, position opened up and I came back to the Connecticut Audubon Society as executive director. And then now what do you what are you responsible for day to day in the position as an executive director? Um, other duties as necessary. <laughs> Basically, it's, Jack it's of never, all trades. There's, yeah. never a, there's never a dull moment uh, when it comes to uh, this position um, because we have uh, more than 3,000 acres of land to take care of, uh, all the environmental education centers around the state. And uh, I also get very heavily involved in uh, advocacy work, uh, trying to uh, make sure that uh, good, good policy gets passed and bad policy doesn't get passed. Can you take us through how a piece of land becomes a conservation land. And then as I'm going through the different uh, pieces of land that the Audubon Society is associated with or is under their management, you know, I see the terms of refuge, sanctuary, uh, preserve. Is there a difference between all of those? And Not then- a real difference between any of them, but uh, there's a variety of pathways to conserving land. Uh, um, there are some uh, ways that Land trusts or the state may purchase land. There, there's bonding uh, at the state level for protection of open space, and that's something that we always keep an eye on to make sure that that continues, that the state continues to invest in, in open space because it really is uh, benefits the economy. It improves land prices around it. It, it, it uh, improves uh, uh, Connecticut as a place to live, to have places to go out and explore nature. Uh, there are also some federal programs. Uh, one important one's called called the Land and Water Conservation Act, and um, there's actually some legislation pending right now in Washington called the Land and Water Conservation Fund uh, Permanent Funding Act, uh, the LWCF for short. And, and we're really hoping that that gets passed because that would uh, allocate a certain amount every year, uh, rather than having to fight appropriations every year to get funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Are those funds usually used to procure the land or, yes. or to manage it? Yeah, to procure, procure the land. There's another uh, piece of legislation pending called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which would help with management of, of, of lands, and we're really hoping that gets passed as well. But uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund is for acquisition, 
And it's mostly at the federal level for acquisition of land of national wildlife refuges. But there's also something called the Stateside Land and Water Conservation Fund. And, and that actually recently helped to protect uh, several hundred acres in eastern Connecticut, including some additions to Mondo Pond in um, Columbia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that there, there's a track of land that the state is... Uh, interested in buying on Monopond? Yeah, Monopond, not Mondopond. Uh, I worked with the Trust for Public Land on on that project, sort of helping to justify why that property would be important to protect. We do a lot of our conservation in partnership with other organizations, right. and uh, and often we'll get uh, a call, you know, asking for a letter of support for yeah. for a various project or or information on what birds might benefit from the protection of a various piece uh, a piece of property. And also, some land is is donated. Many of our sanctuaries uh, were donated to the Connecticut Audubon Society over the years. So, are they donated because the people, the landowners, realize how much or how many bird species rely on that property, or it's ideal, or while it's under management, the Audubon Society creates it into what can be an ideal sanctuary for the birds. Yeah, it's often that the landowner really likes their property and wants to see it. Uh, uh, preserved uh, in perpetuity we have to be good stewards of whatever land we we uh, accept so we're we're very picky about what lands we we would we would accept and and often we require uh, some funds to be able to manage it because uh, if you accept a property and you don't have the capacity to manage it, it properly it's uh, it doesn't do any anybody any good does management uh, of a property include you know eradication or elimination of uh, of invasive species if possible or just keeping them to a minimum yeah invasive management is one thing sometimes you need successional management because uh, some of our old field and grassland habitats are very important but those require uh, management from year to year in order to keep them from growing back up into a forest yeah as a as a yard owner i know that myself (laughs) just just my little piece of property takes all i can do to keep out the barberry and the bittersweet and the because the, those darn birds just like those. I know, right? <laughs> when it comes to management, like wh- where does most of the cost or where is it needed to maintain that land? Is Well, it comes out of our general operating support generally. And uh, so uh, that's one reason why we need support from donors and members uh, that to help us keep our habitats as, as, as pristine as possible. And so it's, it's like the cleaning of it. And, and well, I guess you said for the fields and everything, it's maintaining that. I assume mowed down at some point to prevent you know large growth from coming up uh, in the field, and and we do get some grants occasionally. We got a grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation that helped us do to do a major uh, habitat restoration project in uh, Westport at our Smith Richardson Sanctuary, which was overrun with invasives, and uh, we sort of uh, reset it and, and planted all sorts of natives there, and, and have turned it into a really uh, top notch uh, rest stop on the Avian Flyway, the Atlantic Flyway here. Um, but even when we do get the grants, uh, we need uh, matching funds. So we need support from from our donors and members. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you don't need to say ornithological <coughs> correctly in the first take in order to become associated with Audubon. <laughs> no, no. See, Terry, there's there there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, <laughs> I'd practice so hard on that too. <laughs> it's well, a tough work. For a lot of us, we're watching the birds in our backyard, and the hobby of backyard birding as far as I know, is the number one hobby amongst people in the country. Yeah, it's the fastest growing hobby. And the fastest and, growing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So are we doing the birds any favors by feeding them in the backyard, or is there anything 
Is that is it good? Is yeah, it it, it, detrimental to the long term population. Yeah, it's probably not de- detrimental. As if you look at most of our feeder birds are doing well, um, they're mostly increasing in, in, in population. It's you know if we didn't feed the birds, the birds would probably find f- food elsewhere. But um, I think the best thing about feeding birds is is attracting them to our yards and to be able to enjoy them. And that really, you know, as people see the birds and they want to learn more about birds, they get a field guide, they learn about uh, birds that they may not be able to see in their yards, and they learn about that, that there are special habitats for certain birds and, and get interested in conservation. So I think that, uh, um, you know, it, it's an important uh, uh, entree into the world of conservation. Uh, I think you hit it right on the nail because that's that's the beginning where we're most of us grew up watching the birds at the bird feeder and then it just grows from there into yeah, other al- avenues yeah yeah i was I, you know i enjoyed watching the birds when i was growing up at the feeders is there anything that we're doing or that's commonly being done in the backyard that we shouldn't be doing well, yeah, there's a lot of things, um, you know, and because Connecticut has this uh, high percentage of the urban wildlife interface, what we do in our yards and communities really has an impact on the larger ecosystems as a whole. And uh, yeah, uh, a lot of times we are planting the wrong things, uh, planting burning bush or, or Japanese barberry um, that, that are invasive species, letting cats outdoors, that's a, that's a bad thing. Um, cats kill uh, millions of songbirds annually, if not. Uh, hundreds of millions. We need to be good stewards of our land. We need to, to uh, try to minimize our area of lawn. We need to plant natives. We need to remove our invasives. And, you know, when you do have a situation where there's bears, you have to be smart about your feeding so you're not, not uh, attract, attracting bears to your yard and giving them an idea that, that they can get an easy meal in habitated areas. I mean, I've heard a lot more about bears at my feeder. Is there a season, uh, a way of keeping the bears aloof? Well, yeah, you, you know, the, the warmer weather, they're more active and they start, you know, they go into hibernation this time of year. Um, Until when? Maybe March? Or yeah, something. you really have to uh, uh, have to play it by ear. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some things that you can feed when the bears are out. The, the thistle seed, they're not so interested in. They're not so interested in hummingbird feeders. It's mainly the, um, the sunflower seeds that they're after. Uh, I heard sorghum also is not is palatable to yeah those. that's not not one of their favorites or squirrels yeah <laughs> is it just the media that's telling us more about the bears have they always been there no the bears are actually increasing uh in in, in population in, in connecticut we actually have a program uh, it may have already happened down down at roger Terry peterson Esquire center about uh about bears and the environment in connecticut what about for the coyotes and the bobcats is there any impact from us feeding the wildlife that's attracting yeah. them or, or are there things that we should be doing so that they're not a threat to us or are they actually a threat they're more of a threat to our pets than to us um the uh coyotes and we're a far bigger threat to coyotes foxes and, and bobcats than they are to us but that's another reason why you should keep cats in indoors is because uh, cats uh, indoor cats actually live uh, up to twice as long or even more uh, than outdoor cats because of all the dangers out there including fighting with other cats and catching diseases uh, getting hit by cars bobcats uh, great horned owls uh, uh, coyotes uh, it's it's um, unhealthy for cats to be outdoors in this uh, neck of the woods yeah i i was uh course with my feeders out on the gazebo i was every night my my feeders would be cleaned out i i also lay some uh, f- uh, food out uh suet out on on the railing for the sparrows and the birds that don't like hang from a feeder and every night i'd be cleaned out 
and I, I, so I put my trail cam out there, and I was blaming the raccoons, um, but uh, it was the biggest possum I've ever seen oh, wow, yeah. that was out there, plus a feral cat who was probably not eating my suet so much as going after the mice that were eating my suet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we actually have an upcoming program uh, at one of our stores. Customers of ours, they have a wildlife rescue, and they specialize in possums, and they're bringing they? in a, a possum. Oh, and, neat. I and, got and, one for them. Educating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They say possums are very good for tick control. Um, they, really? They yeah. eat a lot of ticks. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And snakes are as well. Well, they eat the rodents that the ticks are on. So, uh, there you go. I love wildlife. The snakes is just not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear there's a benefit That's there. That's a biblical story, yeah. you know. <laughs> but what about to attract more birds? Are there things that, that you recommend we do to create a better environment for them or to attract certain species or some insider tips there's a lot you can do with landscaping to attract birds uh really you know you have to think about vertical structural diversity that's a fancy way of saying you want to make habitats at every level from the ground up to your trees you don't want to you you want to think you think about birds uh as as things that fly around but they just fly from two to uh, you know from place to place as a way of 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 moving but a lot of times they're hopping around on substrate of some sort, either on the ground, in your gardens, or in your shrubs, or in your trees. So what what you want to try to do is make sure that there's native plants that are at every level in, in your yard. So no matter what height a bird or an insect likes to forage, it'll find it there. Creating pollinator gardens is a, is a great way to help the birds as well because many of our birds are insect eaters. They're insectivorous. If you you know are helping the bees and the other pollinators, you're also creating bird food and structure as well for the birds. And you know, planting natives is very important because our, our native insects and native plants are co-adapted and uh you know something like an oak tree has 500 and something species of caterpillars that can be found on it but uh something like a a ginkgo tree which is native to asia only has you know a handful of of caterpillars that will feed on it so the the more natives you can plant the the greater diversity of insects you're going to create and the the more you're going to benefit the birds what about shelter patrick uh I mean, we had some zero-degree, negative-degree nights both this year and then last year. And I'm thinking, my gosh, I should build one of those uh, little houses to to shelter the birds. Are they... They're doing okay, I guess. There's there's different ways birds take shelter. Bluebirds do like to roost in boxes, and you can buy bluebird roost boxes. Uh-huh. They'll spend the night in there sometimes. Sometimes planting things like cedars and evergreens, uh, holly trees, uh, is a great way to, to create shelter. Uh, brush piles is another uh, oh, okay. uh, way. You know, you don't you, you want a br- nice loose brush pile that yeah. the birds can get into. Um, and then you know, again, that that uh, structural diversity I was talking about, making sure that you have. Um, you know things at all heights. You keep your your garden standing over the winter time to have to create uh, food and structure for the birds. You you plant wildflower gardens. You plant uh, sh- native shrubs, small trees, and all the way up into uh, managing your existing canopy trees. Now, what about water? Uh, I mean, we're surrounded by water here, but it, I think it's either brackish or salt. It is all brackish water here, and that's one of the reasons we actually put in a, uh, I don't know if you saw it on the way in. And we, we did, yeah. we, we put in a, a water feature, if you will, a water garden. Uh, we had some, Very nice, uh, some anonymous donors that, that um, you know, we had, they asked, well, what's the 
the, the number one thing we could do here to make a difference for the birds. And we said, oh, you know, creating some fresh water here would be a, um, a, a really benefit to them. And that in, in migration time, that, that uh, uh, water garden was really amazing. We'd get scarlet tanagers, we'd get warblers, we'd get hermit oh, thrushes yeah. at it. You know, and you can attract a wide variety of, of birds. You don't necessarily need to do something as fancy as that. Um, the two times of year when the water is most important is during the drought of the summer and then the really cold times of the winter. And you can put heaters in, in bird baths uh, to make sure that you provide water in, in the wintertime. But you can also uh, make sure that they're full, full of clean water in the summertime. And, and running water is a, is a trick uh, because the birds hear it and will come, come yeah. in. And you, know, you can either do a recirculating pump with a pond like we have, or you can do things like a, a drip hose that, that drips into the bird bath, keeps the water uh, full and clean as oh, well. Yeah. Yeah, you have a nice waterfall out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think of the, the Audubon Society, I think of the, you know, the understanding and the science of, you know, the, the migratory and, and local bird populations. But so much of it is understanding the landscape and what different plants. It, it's almost, it's the means of the end being managing the bird populations is providing this great landscape. And we've, we've covered everything from providing water gardens to different shrubbery and evergreens. I, I don't think you can think of it as a linear thing. It's more of, of a circle. It all works together. It's a food I mean, web. The, yeah, the, thank you very much. Food web. That's, yeah. I, I just think it's fascinating. I mean, you know, it gives you a little bit more purpose when you're working out in the yard. That it's not just for, you know, curb appeal. That you can also be doing. Well, some people still think that way. That yeah. nice long green lawn, you yeah. know, that's good. It's actually getting out of fashion. I was looking at the 2020 trends, uh, horticultural trends, and it's been a trend for uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years or more. But the less lawn you have, the better. I, I mean, how much lawn do you need? You just need enough to just play to, volleyball, exactly, right? Yeah. Well, even even the grass varieties. There's actually a new grass variety that was just, uh, I just saw an email announced, much more drought tolerant, self-sufficient, less fertilizer, less water. And that's been the trend, you know, over a number of years um, as the newer varieties are coming out. Because even... Even the golf courses, you know, it's it's financially beneficial for them to use less input. Sure. But it's better for our environment, too, you know, especially Absolutely. when you're not, you know, pumping tons of fertilizer into the soil. The less lawn you have, the more time you have to golf. And, uh, you, <laughs> you know, the excess fertilizer we put on our lawns all ends up in Long Island Sound eventually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a, most of it, actually, if it's not an organic, you know, only very little gets into that that plant most of it's washed down the sewer and there are some things you can do like uh, mixing in white clover with your lawn which helps to fix the nitrogen from the atmosphere and uh, every time you mow your lawn you're fertilizing it mm-hmm. also creates uh, some nectar for uh, for for the pollinators yeah absolutely and, and Elena, i know your favorite product on the horizon is the micro clover well it's already into uh sod for the sod mixtures right uh, it's not it's just not available no, commercially no. yet there's no package product but it's it's far smaller it, it maybe doesn't grow more than two inches tall and it flowers a lot less mm. which is violets are another thing that you can let oh. go into your lawn and they uh, yes they actually end up being a host plant for a species a, a family of butterflies the fritillaries and mm. violets and johnny jump ups are also a culinary thing where you can put them in ice cubes and then dip them in your may wine put the ice cube in your may wine and really impress your guests. Mm. 
Yes. Yeah. They're edible. They're edible flowers. Yeah. If you don't have a dog. Are they not good for dogs? <laughs> no, I oh. wouldn't want to eat the violets that were in a dog's yard. Oh, I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> or what are the what are the key things going on in the Audubon Society now? Like what are the key focuses or maybe uh more current goals of projects that the Audubon Society is working on? Sure. Uh, we're constantly working on our 3,000-plus 3, 3, acres. Uh, we're still uh, uh, we're trying to maintain our uh, habitat restoration project down at Smith-Richardson, which is really an amazing project. We're um, uh, working, we, we've been working here at our Milford Point Sanctuary over the past uh, couple of years to improve the habitat here as well. We're also, um, uh, you know, we're, we're keeping an eye on uh, uh, policy issues. Uh, as, as I had mentioned, the Recovering, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, that's something that we're, uh, we're closely watching, and the Land and Water Conservation Fund Permanent Funding Act down in D.C. The um, legislative session is going to be starting up in February, so we're, uh, work, we're, we're going to be working with our other partners to see what, what um, items we need to be watching in the upcoming legislative session. We have a, a, a tool now that people allows people to easily contact their lawmakers about uh, issues. Uh, uh, so if you if you go to our website, you can sign up for our advocacy list and uh, um, you know keep abreast of uh, important uh, policy issues where you can weigh in and make your voices heard on. Uh, we also you know have our education programs, our science and nature program, which uses outdoors uh, the outdoor classroom as a way to uh, open new ni- eyes to nature and to uh, inspire and empower the next generation of science and conservation leaders. Great, great. And now, as you look back to you know everything you guys are working on now and your career and all of the projects you've been a part of, um, I read your you were pretty fundamental and and pretty key to getting a lot of the land that's currently under conservation uh, in Connecticut or procured, I guess. But you know what what have been some of the more more rewarding moments in your career and uh, and being part of? I'm going to give it a shot. The ornithological. Uh, ecosystem we have in uh, the state of Connecticut. Yeah, I think uh, our Smith Richardson project, you've been hearing me talk a little uh, about uh, quite a bit, uh, that was very rewarding because it was a a property that was was severely degraded and now it's just this amazing uh, place for migrating birds. Uh, uh, One of our employees was down there doing a survey the other day and they had uh, like a a dozen field sparrows, which is pretty good sighting in the the wintertime. I think uh, my involvement with the Friends of the Silvio Conti National Fish and Wildlife Refuge has, has been very, uh, re- very rewarding um, because we've been able to protect thousands of acres in the Connecticut River watershed, mostly through the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That's located in Glastonbury. No, that's the entire Connecticut River watershed. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, from from Vermont and New Hampshire down to the mouth of the Connecticut River, and they have certain focal areas in which they can acquire lands. Uh, lately, the, uh, right around the Salmon River is where where they've been focusing on in Connecticut. Patrick, I have a very pointed question now. I'm, I I was in the nursery industry for a long time, and I've got running water. I've got all type, types of structure at different levels. I've got uh, native plants that, uh, you know, if I plant something, it's going to be native or a native cultivar. But I have not been able for the life of me, and I know they're out there. 
attracted pileated woodpeckers to my winter bird feeders. Yeah, pileated what's, woodpeckers. Pileated, excuse me. What's pileated, pileated, either. <laughs> they're, they're, they're difficult to attract to a yard. Um, oh, because you know, before I go to that refuge in the sky, I want to attract one. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, keep your eye on your suet feeders in the winter t- in, in the uh, wintertime when there's a snowstorm. That's when they're most likely to visit. Okay. Um, also, uh, having snags in your yard. Uh, they, they like snags. That is, uh, you know, dead and dying trees. Oh, I got so, them, yeah. Yeah, so uh, um, you know, just and keep an ear out for them. They're like, they make. Can you give me a? Do you have to be able to do bird calls in order to become associated with Audubon? No, not necessarily. That's impressive. I know it. I know it. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. They tend to they tend to like the you know the raw beef suet too. You know, the time I've had them at a suet feeder. Was just in a cage on a cage feeder that was on the the trunk of a tree and, mm-hmm. and full of the uh, store bought raw suet. Well, I thought I, I, th- I thought I had one at my suet feeder, but it ended up to be a possum. Uh. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you guys were doing a survey. I believe you said down in Fairfield. How does a survey of a bird population work? Is it you're looking over like what are the controls you put in place? Say, all right, we're going to give it one hour, and then somebody who's got a good grasp on the different um, species that they're there observing it or are they looking at a feeder or a water source there's all sorts of different studies that you can do for for bird populations and bird movements uh one that's going on right now is the connecticut bird atlas which connecticut audubon society is one of the sponsors of and that does have one hour timed surveys uh, you can uh, uh just uh, look up connecticut bird atlas uh, uh on google and you'll find find the website for it and you go out at different times of the year and in in a and you do one hour time surveys recording all of the uh the birds you see there's other other more stringent protocols um like uh, uh, point count protocols where you go uh, to certain random points and you go to each point and you, you count the, the number of birds you see within uh, various various time frames, one minute, three minute, five minute uh, time frames, and also try to estimate uh, the distance to the birds. And that, that, that can be a very good tool, tool for uh, extrapolating bird populations if you do that properly there's um more uh casual surveys like the christmas bird count which just is wrapping up and uh, uh the great backyard bird count which happens over uh, president's day weekend mm-hmm. and um uh the summer bird count which happens throughout the state uh, uh in june so are those are those run by the connecticut audubon society we have some participation to varying degrees in, in each of those okay uh, so um now the backyard Bird count. That's no, run you, by you, Cornell and, and National Audubon Society. You, you piqued my interest on that one. So can I sit at my dining room window and look out at my bird feeders and count birds? Yes, and there's also Project Feeder Watch from Cornell, which, oh, okay. which has, has a little bit more uh, stringent uh, uh, protocols. But um, the Great Backyard Bird Count, really the whole world is your backyard with regard to the, ah, the Great Backyard Bird yeah. Count. And it happens over President's Day weekend each year. Cool. So, how can we do? We go to like Cornell's website in order to yeah, enlist Google, to participate. I would I would Google Great Backyard Bird Count. You, okay. They have their own website, or you can uh, Google um, uh, Project Feeder Watch. We have some programs uh, at our various centers related to those as well, teaching people how to how to participate in them. Oh, fantastic! Um, you know, we also have bird banding operations we do at our Pomfret Sanctuary and at Birdcraft, uh, where we actually uh, you catch birds and mist nets and a t- a fix a little. Uh, um, 
bracelet, if you will, around mm-hmm. the, their leg that doesn't harm the bird, and then you release them. And uh, if another bander catches them, they you know they'll, they're able to record all the information. They you know they measure them, they they weigh them, um, and or if, if if a bird is found deceased with a with a bracelet uh, with a ring on it, you can. Uh, um, there's a reportban.gov where you can report that uh, uh, information to the, the USGS. Gotcha. Is, is part of that banding how some of the migration is tracked? Yeah, that and there's also we have uh, uh, we have a special tracking device at two of our two locations in Connecticut. One's at the uh, Chapog Dam in Southbury, and one's at our our, our uh, Deer Pond Farm in 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 Sherman. And it's called Modus, which is um, I think it's either Greek or Latin for movement. And what it does is is that certain researchers affix um, transmitters, very tiny transmitters on birds. And anytime that bird flies uh, within uh, you know a few miles of this tower, it it picks it up. And uh, there's oh, a whole wow. network of these towers out there that, that that really helps us with with understanding uh, the timing of migration. We know when red knots are moving through, or when, we know when rusty blackbirds or, or picknell's thrushes are moving through by by when they ping these towers is that tracking published anywhere to see yeah there's a website uh, on uh, if you just google modus uh, m-o-t-u-s um you, you can find out more information on it i did not know that's fascinating i know i'd like to know when the grackles are coming in so i can hide my feet <laughs> Pat your feeders <laughs> yeah, grackles actually have declined quite a bit. Have they? Yeah. Not last year in my yard. No, though they're still abundant, but they've uh, declined to the point where they were actually uh, considered uh, going on a list of global conservation concerns. Really? Yeah. Is this the boat tail grackle? No, the, the, the common grackle. Common grackle? Yeah. The, the, what has the nice silvery eye, shiny eye? Yeah, that's the, the common grackle. Common grackle, yeah. yeah. I remember uh, Penn State. I, I Now, I don't know if these were cowbirds or grackles, but... I I had a third floor uh, office window, and I would look out. I'd spend most of my weekends there actually studying. I, I studied in in college, Terry, and uh, <laughs> miles and miles of just this migration. Uh, I don't know if they were grackles or cowbirds. Probably a mixed flock of blackbirds. I'll tell you what, grackles and red wings. It and, never ended. Yeah, no, and we're seeing less and less of that. Really? Uh, although, you know, it still may seem that the grackles are abundant in your yard. Uh, they're, they're, uh, um, they've really declined. And and do we know why? There's, or do we think we know why? Probably, you know, loss of wetland habitat. Um, also, uh, they're, they're um, actually poisoned in, in large numbers. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I don't uh, like them, but I'm not poisoning them. Agricultural areas are considered uh, an agricultural pest. I did read, and and actually I'm sort of confused. Is there a connection between the National Audubon Society and the Connecticut Audubon Society? No, we're independent. We're older okay. than, than National Audubon Society, um, uh, and... Uh, you know, there were a lot of independent Audubons formed in uh, in the late 19th, 19th century, and Connecticut Audubon Society being one of them. And uh, then in, in, I think, 1906, um, National Audubon Society formed, and they asked certain of the independent Audubons if they wanted to join forces together with them. And uh, uh, many of the, the Northeast independent Audubons, uh, the oldest ones, uh, wanted to maintain their independence, including Connecticut Audubon Society. In most of those states, there wasn't much of a presence of Connecticut of, of uh, National Audubon Society, but in Connecticut, um, they ended up uh, um, 
ending up ended up having some land that that uh, was donated to National Audubon Society, and and for a variety of reasons, we're blessed with having both a statewide chapter of National Audubon Society and also our independent uh, Connecticut Audubon Society. What I was reading was that I think it was the National Audubon Society that pushed for the elimination of DDT being used. And and the independence okay. on societies were also, were also engaged in that as well. So kind of a partnership. Yeah. yeah. Roland lot. Clement, who was uh, um, was really instrumental in that, uh, also was very involved with the Connecticut Audubon Society. Now, Audubon, there, there was a person named Audubon. He was yes, a painter, John wasn't James he? James Audubon, yes. Yeah. He, was, he was an artist. How did he get to be associated with the ladies in Boston? I'm not sure why they chose his name, but he was the most famous uh, uh, famous of the uh, of the 19th century uh, bird artists, uh-huh. and he spent his time trying to catalog all of the birds in in North America. Oh, so he did some cataloging. Yeah. yeah. So, of all the different properties, are all of them open to the public? I mean, you mentioned I think the the Deer Pond Farm of how beautiful it is. Is it? Can you just show up and go there? Yeah. Do you have to go during certain Open hours? Open dawn, dawn to dusk. Okay. Uh, uh, not all, there's, we have an island in Stonington that isn't open to the public, but other than, other than that, uh, our, our sanctuaries are all open dawn to dusk, 365. What island does that have? Is that near Stony Point anywhere? Um, right outside the harbor. Yeah, it's it's right outside the harbor. I know that there uh, there is an island. Well, it's, a, it's an island. It's not an island, but it's a sandy point. Where there is a lot of area that is yeah that's roped owned, off yeah that's owned by um, uh, the Stuart B. McKinney National Wildlife Refuge uh-huh. um, and uh, Avalonia Land Conservancy that's Sandy Point Island it's a wonderful wonderful place yeah it's Wilcox Island is the one that Wilcox Island. yeah that we have okay I'll stay off of it it's a very small island there's not much to see there it's mainly there for uh, for nesting birds yeah 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 there's a, actually there's a lot of the Connecticut ghost that has at least when I bring my kayak up to take a rest, yeah, there's a sign there saying, "Hey, stay off of this beach here because it's a nesting site." Yeah, and you know a lot of those are state natural area preserves. There's uh-huh. Charles Island here in Milford, which is a natural area preserve. There's Duck Island in Westport, um, and then some of those islands are, are private property and just roped off as preserves. Yeah. Well, I don't need much for Westbrook, not Westport. Yeah, and, and the most you know most of the areas where there are piping plovers nesting, there are some areas that are roped off, but there's also uh, plenty of room for people as well. And uh, our philosophy is to to share the shore. If you can, uh, you know, just avoid the roped off areas and mm-hmm. and give the birds a little bit of space. There's there's it's not unreasonable, really. No, I was really blown away when I when I read that it was you know over thirty three hundred acres in Connecticut that it's under conservation. And what do you think goes like the most underappreciated part of what the Audubon Society does or, or even like these parcels of land. I think it, you know, people uh, don't realize how much, you know, care it takes to keep all of our, uh, our lands uh, in healthy habitats and uh, something that we're, we're always striving to do a better job on and we need all the help we can get in terms of funding and uh, uh, volunteer labor. Okay. I'm psyched. Patrick, how do I get involved? You can come to our website, uh, ctaudubon.org. We're also on Facebook, too, Connecticut Audubon Society. And, you know, I've got a birthday coming up. I think I'm going to ask for a uh, membership to the Audubon Society. Yeah. Go over to the Glastonbury office. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I might come down here. This is beautiful. Yeah, place. this is an amazing mean, place. For everyone listening, to, we're down at Milford Point, and this is just an incredible place to come down and see. And you guys have some viewing platforms, the freshwater area, but... 
I mean, this marsh is just beautiful. I mean, there's like a flock of ducks that just flew across uh, behind Patrick's head as he was speaking. Is this, this is pretty cool. They see me you know, with my back to the window, so I don't get distracted. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we put you there. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great, fascinating, and we really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Home Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and can take a second to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred listening app, we'd greatly appreciate it. The reviews help us stay relevant in the land of podcasts and let us know to keep working hard. And until next time, remember, where that is in which you love, that's home. Mackey's, where the home grows.